Niagara Falls used to be just to me a name and something that I'd seen in a documentary, something that I'd heard stories about, some fellow Blondin walking across on a tightrope and so on, until I saw it in real life. And now it has to be one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed in my life. It was amazing. Photos can't do it justice. I'd heard stories about Niagara Falls, I'd seen it on TV, but nothing could have prepared me just for how big it was. You could, you could literally hear the ground shaking. You could take, I, we took a boat trip down underneath the falls and the roar down underneath was deafening. And all around um, the lookouts and the souvenir shops were just covered in mist. We had to wear these kind of rain jacket things. The only thing, thing I can think of in my life that comes close to Niagara Falls, although it is a, a close second, was in high school when I first got my Marshall JMP 100 watt guitar amp and I plugged it in and I turned it up to 10 and until mum and dad realised what was happening, the whole house shook, the windows were vibrating. It was, it was like Jericho, the house was about to fall down. But Niagara Falls was even bigger than that. I wonder if you've had one of those moments in your life where it was so big you just can't put it into words. The kind of moment that you want to last forever. When we're bushwalking and we see a waterfall five minutes and I'm ready to keep walking, but Niagara Falls, we were there for hours and I was just watching. It's the kind of moment you can't describe to others and what's the phrase? You had to be there. You had to be there. I reckon for Peter, James and John, three of Jesus' disciples, Mark 9 was one of those moments. You had to be there. In Mark 9, these three catch a glimpse, just a small peak of Jesus' power, Jesus' glory. Now already they've witnessed a lot of incredible things in Mark's gospel. Jesus has been teaching with authority. Crowds are coming from everywhere. Jesus has been healing people. He makes the storm stop with two words. Demons are scared of him. He's walked on water. He's raised a dead girl back to life. And so we've seen in Mark's gospel, haven't we? People are coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas about who Jesus is and where he might get his power from. But one thing is for sure, he's different to anything people have ever seen. And yet to look at, he's no different, is he? He's just an ordinary bloke. In, in fact, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read people saying, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus, very ordinary to look at. But for a moment, that's about to change because in Mark chapter 9, just for a brief moment, the curtains are pulled back and Jesus is transformed and three of his disciples catch a peek of who he really is. So let's pick it up together from where we left off a few months ago in Mark chapter 9 verse 1. This is really the end of Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And in 9 verse 1 he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, that must have sent a buzz around the disciples. 
some of those standing there would see God's kingdom come in power before they died. And with those words still ringing in their ears, Jesus takes three of his disciples up onto a mountain, chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. One moment Jesus looks like an ordinary bloke. The next moment his clothes are bright white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It almost sounds like a washing powder ad, doesn't it? But it's not simply the change of appearance in Jesus' clothing that Mark tells us about. Jesus' transformation is eclipsed by something even more staggering. Verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Wonder what they were talking about. I bet it's not the kind of trivialities that we talk about at morning tea. Luke tells us what they were talking about, but Mark here doesn't. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is very strange. Moses and Elijah are fellows way from the past, before Jesus at an entirely different time. This would be like saying, I was up on Mount Kosciuszko with... Captain Cook and Don Bradman. Guys from the past, guys that didn't even live together. These two figures, Moses, he lived 1,500 years before Jesus, 1,500 years before Jesus, way back when the nation of Israel were in Egypt as slaves with King Pharaoh. Remember, way back in the book of Exodus, Moses is the one God gave the Ten Commandments to. Elijah, well, he was about 800 years before Jesus. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel a long time after Moses. He's the one you might remember who went head to head with the prophets of Baal in a a kind of show off who's the real God and the fire came down and showed that God, Yahweh, was the true God. Why those two? Why Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus? It might be that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, but I think it's bigger than that. Elijah and Moses in the Old Testament both saw God's glory. Both had God's glory pass them by. In Exodus 34, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. There's lightning. The entire mountain is covered with cloud and God causes his glory to pass by Moses. In fact, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets in his hand, it says his face was glowing because he'd spoken with God. Moses is a great one from the Old Testament. Then 700 years later, 800 years before Jesus, a second time God came and passed someone by and revealed his glory. This time it was to Elijah, 1 Kings 19, on the same mountain, Mount Sinai. And just like with Moses, God revealed his glory to Elijah. And now, 800 years later, here we are on a mountain, not just Moses, not just Elijah, but both of them talking with Jesus. And if that's not enough, it's just about to go up a notch. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
This cloud is nothing less than the glory of God himself. The same glory that appeared to Moses, to Elijah, is now here again. And what does God say? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And in case there's any doubt as to who this is, Moses or Elijah or Jesus, zap, it's all gone and Jesus is there alone. These two great figures from the Old Testament. And Jesus is not just as big as them, he's not just like them, he is greater than them. This is my son. Listen to him. In fact, it's very similar to what God says in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And what does God want us to do? Listen to Jesus. And why wouldn't you? He's the son of God. He's the one who made the entire world and who will inherit it all. He's the one who the entire Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, were all pointing to. You'd be crazy not to listen to him. Master Chef, Series 2, Week 2. Tuesday night. It's the guest celebrity chef Peter Gilmore from the Key Restaurant in Sydney. Three chef hats, restaurant of the year in 2008, 2009, 2010. He has designed a master dish for them to cook. Poached chicken with truffle. You've got to skin the chicken. You've got to wrap it, the chicken round with truffle and put the skin around it and poach it. And They ask him for a tip before they cook it. And he gives these three young cooks one piece of advice. One piece of advice. He says, read the recipe carefully before you start. What does Kate do? She doesn't read the recipe carefully. Her chicken comes out raw. It's a total disaster. She's eliminated from the master chef kitchen. What is God's advice? Listen to Jesus. And it has far bigger implications than not following a recipe. Listen to Jesus. He alone is the truth. He knows the way to the Father. And this command comes from God himself. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Well, poor old Peter at this point, is just beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, verse six, verse 4 to 6, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What, what, where's this idea of putting up shelters come from? Well, um, Mark goes on to say he didn't know what to say, for they were so frightened. I don't know, maybe setting up the tents is this idea of he just wants something to be a bit permanent. Maybe it's the equivalent of us taking a photo. But it's not permanent. In fact, as quickly as it appeared, it's all gone. Verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, if that's not bad enough, just the whole thing's over and there's just Jesus left... Not only is it all now over, 
Jesus tells them to keep it under wraps. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What a downer. Imagine seeing that and not being allowed to talk to anyone about it, not even the other disciples. I mean, imagine Peter, James and John getting down from the mountain, white as ghosts. Another disciple comes up to them, Matthew. What happened up on the mountain, fellas? Oh, nothing. This is all cone of silence. Although what gets the disciples worked up is not that they're not allowed to tell anyone. What gets them all worked up is Jesus said that they're not allowed to tell anyone until he has risen from the dead. And they seize upon that. They're not sure what that phrase means. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what raising from the dead meant. They're probably discussing it because when they hear resurrection or raising from the dead, they're thinking of the general resurrection, the end of time, the coming of the kingdom of God when all people will be raised. The idea of one person being raised before the resurrection, that would be a new idea for them. Perhaps one they didn't even work out till after Jesus' resurrection. And so what follows is a discussion about the timing of things. They asked Jesus, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So if the disciples are actually waiting for the coming of God's kingdom, which is what Jesus was talking about in 9 verse 1, remember, um, before some of you will see God's kingdom before you taste death. If that's what they're waiting for, then before the coming of the kingdom, the prophet Elijah is meant to come. That comes from the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last verse of the Old Testament, in fact, God promises this. Malachi 4.5, you might want to look it up later. Malachi 4.5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, by Jesus' day, they just summed that up by saying Elijah would come and restore all things. In other words, the timeline, according to the Old Testament, according to Malachi, is this. One, Elijah will come and fix things up. Two, the day of the Lord will come. So the disciples' question is a good one. If the day of the Lord's coming, the resurrection, whatever it is, shouldn't Elijah come first to restore all things? Well, to make things more complicated, rather than just give them a simple answer, Jesus answers their question with another question, almost a riddle. Verse 12, Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Jesus answers their question with a more complicated question. His, his question is this. If Elijah is meant to come first and fix things up, as Malachi says, why is it written in other parts of the Old Testament that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? And I gather Jesus is thinking about passages like Isaiah 53, where um, he'll be pierced and crushed and afflicted. Or Psalm 22, which describes what looks like a crucifixion in quite um, intricate detail. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? If Elijah's going to come and fix everything up, that would mean the entire nation of Israel coming back to God, being ready for their king. 
If that's going to happen, why will their king, Jesus, be crucified? Why will the Christ suffer? And so Jesus answers that question, his question, in verse 13. And I think this is the key to understanding this section. This is the last thing Jesus says here, verse 13. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Elijah has come. John the Baptist was the Elijah. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. Mark doesn't put John the Baptist's name in, but Matthew does. I think Mark thinks that will work it out for ourselves. Elijah, John the Baptist, came. But he didn't restore all things, did he? The nation of Israel as a whole didn't repent. In fact, what happened to John the Baptist? He got put in jail and beheaded. That's what Jesus means by they have done to him everything they wished. They killed him. So what then happened to the great promises of Malachi? That's Jesus' question. It might be worth going back and looking, having a closer look at Malachi. Turn with me, Malachi 4.5, last book of the Old Testament, last verse of the Old Testament. Just before Matthew, Malachi 4.5. Malachi 4.5. I don't think we've done justice to this passage till we work out Jesus' riddle. Malachi 4.5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. There's the promise of John the Baptist coming, the Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. See, even back in Malachi there, there's an option B or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Elijah will either restore the nation of Israel or the nation of Israel will be cursed. And Jesus is saying, it's option B. I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And so there will be no national restoration of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will be rejected, cursed, because they did not turn back to God. And that's why Jesus must suffer. Because Israel rejected the messenger, John the Baptist, and they will reject God's king as well. And so this section of Mark's Gospel, the Transfiguration, it's not just about how great Jesus is. Great as he is, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. The voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. It's not just a glimpse of Jesus' glory. This passage is also showing us that this glorious Jesus, this wonderful son of God, will have to suffer. And the way to glory for Jesus is through suffering. How hard that must have been for Peter and James and John. They've just witnessed Jesus in his glory and yet they will have to watch him suffer and die. Why? Why will Jesus have to die? Well, we'll see it in a couple of weeks in chapter 10 to give his life as a ransom for many. He will die so that Peter 
James, John, you and I can be forgiven for the mess which is our lives if we believe in him. And I think this chapter of Mark's Gospel actually gives us one of the clearest demonstrations of what belief is, what faith is. See, all through Mark's Gospel we've been seeing people put their faith in Jesus. Here the disciples are being asked to put their faith in Jesus because they're being asked to listen to Jesus. The disciples know who Jesus is, they've seen his glory, and yet they have to go down from the mountain back into everyday life and live their lives by faith, listening to Jesus, trusting him, even when things look pretty ordinary. Even as he's beaten and mocked and eventually killed. Watching that and not living by what they see, but living by what they know to be true. That this man on a cross is actually the king of glory. Now that's what faith is. Hebrew says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that's what the theme of this section is. In fact, in a few verses on, we meet a guy who says to Jesus, if you can, you can help us. And Jesus says, if I can, of course I can. The question is not if I can. The question is, do you believe? And the boy's father, he cries out and he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Faith can be hard at times. Believing what we can't see. And we can be this mixture of belief and unbelief because like this man, we don't see Jesus in his full glory right now, do we? We haven't seen him on the mountain in his glory. We live by faith. But one day we will see it. In the meantime, we live by what we don't yet see. And when life throws at us things that we wouldn't have planned or we wouldn't have wished, we know who Jesus is and we listen to him and we live by faith. And even when listening to Jesus means doing something hard, even if it means doing something costly, even though we don't yet see him, we do it because we know who he is and we live by faith. We live by what we can't see, although one day we will see it, won't we? One day the Son of Man will come in his full glory and every eye will see him, the Bible says. When he appears, we shall see him as he is and every knee will bow before him. And all the spectacular things that we might have seen in this life, Niagara Falls, whatever they are, they will pale into insignificance because the most glorious is yet to come. And it won't be just a glimpse of his glory like the disciples saw on the mountain. We will see him in his full power and all his glory. But in the meantime, we wait and we live by faith. And we listen to him. Let's pray.
Father God, it must have been amazing for Peter, James and John to be up there on the mountain with your son Jesus and catch a glimpse of his glory. Father, on the one hand, we know so much more than they did. Having seen his death and resurrection, as we read it in the Bible, having read about his ascension and having seen the gospel spread right around the world since then. And yet, Father, like them, we're still waiting for Jesus' return when we see him in his full glory. Father, we look forward to that day, but we pray that in the meantime, you'd help us to trust who Jesus is and listen to him. And Father, when, when life is hard and we feel like that fellow, I believe, help my unbelief, we pray that you'd help us to look to Jesus. Help us to listen to him and help us to obey him as we look forward to that wonderful day when in all his glory and splendour, he will return. And like the end of Revelation, Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray that that day might come to, come soon. Amen.